Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. I just realized, I don't say is the voicemail number. I just say it like y'all know what it is. That's on me. That's my bad. So, anyway. <laughs> you can check us out on Twitter at Ratchet Book Club. Um... Facebook, Ratchet Book Club, uh, Ratchet and Ratchet, gmail.com, things of that nature. Let's get it. Chapter 5. Mo sat with his head down, waiting for his case to be called. He had never been in this kind of trouble before, and knowing that he was facing a dilemma alone terrified him. If he could just get his heart to stop thundering inside his chest, he would be able to calm himself. If only. He had spent three days in juvenile city lockup going crazy. It had been so cold inside the holding cell that he was grateful for this warmth inside the courtroom. Detective after detective had tried to get him to divulge information about Carter's whereabouts, but Moe had kept his mouth shut. He didn't know much, but the one thing he knew was to never go against his family. He worried about his cousin. No one would tell him how CJ was, and he had no idea what fate lay ahead for either of them. They had hauled him to court each day and made him wait all day, handcuffed and afraid, only for his case to be postponed until the following day. Finally, he heard his name and made his way to the podium that sat directly in front of the judge. Next up on the docket, Monroe Diamond versus the city of Miami. You're charged with aggravated assault. How do you plead? The judge asked. Mo didn't even know what aggravated assault was. He looked at the public defender who stood beside him. Mo didn't know where the man had come from. He had shown up out of nowhere, claiming he would help Mo. So far, he hadn't helped much at all. Do you need a minute to confer with your client? The judge asked, noticing Mo's confused expression. Just a brief one, Your Honor, the man replied. He pulled Mo aside and said, This is where you plead guilty. Guilty? Mo asked. He hurt my cousin. I was just defending. Look, kid, you plead guilty and the judge will take it easy on you. You could take this to a trial, but there's witnesses and footage that'll show you stabbing a U.S. attorney in the eye. You take a plea, it'll be much better for you. The court-assigned lawyer was trying to close cases at a rapid rate. He had a hundred cases of juvenile offenders on his desk. None of them would go to trial if he had anything to do with it. He was just turning cases over, convincing his clients to take whatever crap deal was being offered without even considering the pursuit of justice by trial and jury. Message! Just trust me, kid. If you fight this, you'll have much worse coming to you. 
Mo felt it in his gut that listening to this man was the wrong move, but he hadn't learned to trust his intuition yet. He was only 12 years old, and this adult was talking over his head. Counsel, are you ready to proceed? The judge said with intolerance. Yes, your honor. Mo inched back to the podium and faced the judge. She was a stern-looking woman with red hair and dark eyes that were hidden behind wire-framed glasses. On the charge of aggravated assault, how do you plead? Mo looked at his lawyer once more. The man nodded. Mo felt sick to his stomach as he opened his mouth to speak. Guilty. His voice wasn't much bigger than a whisper. He was unnerved as his chin began to quiver and his shoulders sagged. And you reached an agreement with the people, correct? The judge looked at him, waiting for an answer. Mo shrugged his shoulders, unsure of how to respond. I don't know, he said. I don't understand. Where are your parents, young man? The judge asked. I don't have parents, Mo responded. They're gone. They died. Counsel, have you advised your client about the deal he's entering into? The judge asked. Yes, ma'am, counsel replied. Mo looked back at his lawyer and then up at the judge. If advising meant pushing him towards a plea, then sure, the lawyer had done his job. But Mo hadn't gotten any helpful information from the overworked, underpaid, court-appointed attorney at all. Even when Mo asked questions, they were dismissed, shrugged off. Do you want to get more time? The lawyer had asked. Keep your mouth closed and do as I say. That was the gist of the advice. The judge looked at him skeptically before speaking. Okay, well, Monroe Diamond, you're hereby sentenced to seven years, six of which will be served in juvenile detention, and upon your 18th birthday, you will be transferred to Dade County Department of Corrections. You will... Mo didn't even hear the rest. Everything seemed to move in slow motion as the bailiff came to escort him out the courtroom. Hey, wait! Wait, man! Mo shouted. He looked at his lawyer, eyes wide with fear, but the man wouldn't even look at him. You said it would be okay! He had been railroaded, tricked into pleading out his case because it was much cheaper for the state if they avoided trial. It was a way of American justice, or rather, injustice, and Mo had just fallen victim to it. Mo's stomach went hollow because he knew his life would never be the same. Seven years might as well be life. It was an eternity. He was being locked up for defending his family. This isn't fair, he shouted. This isn't right. The ominous feeling of loneliness he had felt made him emotional. All he wanted to do was cry, but the eyes of the other juvenile inmates watching him caused him to hold in his tears. He couldn't display fear or weakness, not where he was going. He was passed to an awaiting guard who escorted him outside. He was put on a white bus and shackled to the seat. Things had spiraled out of control so quickly that it felt unreal. It wasn't long ago that he was in Baraka's clutches. He had just gotten readjusted at home when the feds came raining down the cartel's regime. Now everyone he had ever loved was gone, either dead or locked up. They had been erased from his life as if they had never even existed. It seemed to be a generational curse that came with his last night, and predictably, he had followed the same path straight to imprisonment. What? What does that mean? Like, I'm a... Wait, it seemed to be a generational curse that came with his last night, and predictably, he had followed the path straight to imprisonment. What does that mean? Like, I know that there's times where I start talking like I'm deep, and I start feeling like I'm deep, and then I listen to the shit later on, and I'm like, that wasn't deep. That was shallow as fuck. But what does this sentence mean? 
It seemed to be a generational curse that came with his last night, and predictably, he had followed the same path straight to imprisonment. I don't get it. So, it's a generational curse that came with his last night. Maybe it's a generational curse that reached him last night. I don't I don't know. I don't even know how to fix it. He hoped life treated CJ more kindly. If he's even alive, Mo thought sadly. The knot in his stomach tightened as the bus rolled away. No one spoke. A daunting silence filled the space as each boy on the bus battled with himself to be brave. How easy the notion of courage was when it wasn't tested. He remembered this feeling of insecurity, of trepidation. He had felt it when he had been taken away from his family, and he felt it in this moment. He was walking into the unknown, and all he could hear was his aunt Breeze's voice in his ear saying, Your names are all you have, but if you use it right, it's all you'll need. He wasn't so sure that it would be enough to see him through the seven years ahead of him. Through the eyes of a 12-year-old boy, that amount of time felt like an eternity. It was a punishment that would change him, harden him. Mo would be raised by bars and steel, sectioned off from the outside world. The idea shook him to his core. The bus stopped and Mo looked at the daunting brick building. The anticipation of what waited inside frightened him. He wouldn't walk back out of these gates until he was a grown man. It was a long punishment, an unjust punishment, but it was his to serve all the same. The circumstances that had landed him there didn't matter. With the bang of the gavel, his fate had been ordered. He had been condemned and there was no changing it. He was stuck and there was no way out. Let me out of here, please. I just want to go home. CJ's voice echoed against the stone walls as he pounded his fist frantically against them. Terror seized him. He didn't know where he was or who had taken him, but he knew that he was in danger. He wanted to cry. Emotion swelled in his chest, making it hard for him to breathe, and his eyes stung as he tried his hardest to hold his tears at bay. His heart had never felt this heavy. It was like an anvil weighed down on his chest and he struggled to breathe in, then out, in, then out. Bravery was hard to hold on to in the face of fear, and he tried to think of what his father would do in that moment. He knew the diamond blood coursed through his veins. He had heard stories of his father, his uncles, and even his grandfather. He came from a long line of gangsters, men who lived by the gun. Some had even died by it as well. Carter and Mia Moore had tried to keep his lineage from him, immersing him in private schools and speaking in hushed tones whenever family business was a topic. They hadn't wanted to choose a lifestyle for him, but instead he had inherited it. His family was legendary in the city of Miami, and fear wasn't part of their DNA. His father wouldn't break if he were in his shoes. His uncles wouldn't cry. They would fight until the strength left their bodies. He was bred from that, right? He wanted to make them proud, to uphold the expectation that came with his last name, but it was almost impossible to fill the empty pit that had formed in his stomach. He didn't understand why he felt so afraid. He couldn't stop the tears from falling down his face if he tried. One minute, he had been playing basketball and buying ice cream with his cousin Monroe, and the next, he was taken. He wondered if Monroe Jr. was still alive. They had separated them. Three days had passed since they had been kidnapped, and he had been thrown into a basement. He hadn't eaten, and his stomach churned as hunger pains tortured him. The unsurmountable horror that seized him made him wish that he would die. A quick demise would be better than the fear of the unknown. 
The locks on the steel door clicked and he looked up hopefully. He held his breath as a man walked in. He was cloaked in the finest clothes that CJ had ever seen. His eyes were dark, menacing, vengeful, and CJ braced himself, half expecting to be shot down by the armed men that entered the room behind their leader. My name is Baraka. I'm the man who's going to decide if you live or if you die. CJ didn't speak. He couldn't find his voice to respond. The lump in his throat blocked the pleas that were running through his mind from ever getting out. His body shook involuntarily. Your family took my daughter from me. Your mother buried her in the dirt. She died slowly in the middle of the desert, wondering why I wasn't coming to save her. An eye for an eye would mean that I'd do the same to you, Baraka said. CJ's bottom lip trembled. He had never seen the side of me and more that Baraka spoke of. Stand him up, Baraka ordered. His men moved on command and pulled CJ to his feet. His legs were so weak that his knees buckled. He hadn't had any food or water in days. He couldn't hold up his own body weight. You stand or you die, Baraka said. CJ's head hung low as he grit his teeth and pressed his hands against the dirty concrete floor. He pushed himself up. It took all he had to get to his feet. His skinny knees knocked and he looked into Baraka's menacing eyes. Behind the glaring stare was a hint of remorse. I'm sorry for what I'm about to do and for what you're about to see. It shouldn't be the burden of the child to pay for the actions of the father, but it must be. CJ's eyes welled with tears as he was pushed out of the room. He was escorted down a long hall, passing steel doors that were shackled with heavy locks. His young imagination ran rampant as he wondered what or who was behind them. He wondered if Little Money and Aunt Lena were behind any of them. His heart ached for them. He desperately needed to see the face of someone he knew. The amount of terror he was experiencing was too much. He was afraid to even breathe, so he found himself holding his breath, only remembering that he needed air when his chest began to plead with him to inhale. He begged God. He had prayed before with his mother, and even though it felt silly to speak to someone he couldn't even see, he did it more than he had ever done it in this dangerous circumstance. Suddenly, the God that his mother made him put his hands together and give thanks to felt like his only hope. Baraka stopped at the end of the hall and opened the last door. CJ paused, but was pushed so forcefully that he fell, skinning his knees. He scrambled to his feet and was nudged forward. Aunt Lena, he cried. She was hanging from the low ceiling rafters, her neck bent in an awkward position and her eyes swollen shut. Her entire body was black and blue. She was bound by her wrists and had been stripped naked as she swung slowly back and forth. He couldn't contain the tears. He lunged for her, but was held back by one of the burly men. Auntie Lena! Bring the other boy, Baraka ordered. CJ's heart stopped as he turned to look for little money. Mo walked into the room, his chest poked out and his lips fixed in a grimace, and CJ instantly recognized the fearlessness that he had tried his hardest to muster. Mo had it. He was a diamond, and CJ looked up to his cousin in that moment. Ma? He whispered as he finally noticed Lena. Ma! He screamed as he violently fought to shake out of the grasp of his captors to reach Lena. Mo's voice seemed to stir Lena, and she groaned. Please. Her words were barely audible. She was so weak, so defeated, and the pain she felt from the beating she had endured over the past three days was immeasurable. 
The fight they had tortured out of her had been reignited with just the sound of her son's voice. They're just kids, she whispered. Please. Like I said before, only women and children. We'll take time out to describe to you how she was naked in front of her child. How she was beaten black and blue. Her eyes were swollen shut. We'll take time to describe all that to you. How he went through a terror of seeing his mother in this situation. How CJ went through a terror of seeing his aunt in this situation. How she begged for their lives. We'll show you all of this. Sure, why not? They're only women. They're only kids. It's not like they're Carter. The children are the pawns on the board, Baraka stated. Your very own king and queen sacrificed them. One life. Me and Moore could have spared George and theirs as well. This has nothing to do with them. Lena's pleas were full of pain, full of anger. You're an honorable man. I'm sorry about Yasmin. I'm sorry it's come to this. Yasmin was a grown woman. She made choices. She slept with a married man. What choices have these kids made to end up here? None. This is war. This is no place for children. Please, Lena sobbed heavily. Oh, God. Her desperation was palpable and hopelessness thick in the air. I don't care what you do to me. I made my choices too, but they're babies. Lena's head drooped once more, her chin resting on her chest. She had used what strength she had left to declare her peace and silence was a reply. It was eerily quiet as CJ looked at Baraka, his heart pounding, his mouth hanging agape as he, as well as everyone else, waited for Baraka to speak. CJ and Mo looked at each other as they were restrained. Baraka stood in front of them, measuring the value of their lives in his mind. CJ felt invisible, as if Baraka could see through him. It didn't matter how well he maintained his emotions or how brave of a front CJ could muster, Baraka could see his fear. They will watch every second until the life leaves your body. Then they will pledge their allegiance to me. They are mine now. A small price for the cartel to pay for what they have taken from me, Baraka stated. I'm a diamond. I don't belong to you, Mo shouted. Baraka chuckled. You are rambunctious. That diamond bloodline is strong, but even diamonds can be destroyed. Yes, yeah, spirit. I will give you that. He turned towards his men. Break it. If they look away or close their eyes, kill them. The men retreated heavy chains that hung from the walls. For the first time, CJ noticed the torture tools. The chains were rusted and old. Axes and knives accompanied them, and he looked at Lena, then at Monroe, in distress. His young mind couldn't quite fathom what he was about to witness. The first blow was yielded with such force that it split the flesh on Lena's back. She yelped in excruciation. I don't even remember. This this brings me to another question too. I've already asked about Breeze being a, a heroin addict. Being a junkie. I've already asked about that. Um, already asked about what happened to Ileana. They never spoke about that again. There was no fallout from that. Like the cartel didn't come looking for her. We still don't know what Mia Moore looks like now that she got whipped with a chain by Mecca. Like nobody ever talked about that. Like she was just like pristine and clean, but y'all the ones who wrote it. So I'm curious. Ah, I'm going to kill you. Don't touch my mama. Ma. Mo yelled as he fought to get to her. CJ was frozen where he stood. His eyes were wide as Baraka's threats played over and over in his head. If they look away, 
killed him. So he didn't. CJ forced himself to watch as the men took the skin off his aunt's bones blow by blow. His stomach clenched, the empty pit now filling with hopelessness as he watched Baraka's hired hand strike once more. The sound of the chain dragging mercilessly across the ground made the hair stand up on the back of CJ's neck. It was like a metal snake, hissing before it prepared to strike. Lena's screams could peel paint off a wall. She was a wounded animal, and the blood that dripped from her body covered the floor around her. The beating didn't stop until there was nothing left of her. She was unrecognizable. Like a piece of butchered meat, she hung there, swinging left to right, bone and flesh. Fuck y'all. CJ jolted out of bed. The images branded on his mind so fresh that he looked around in horror, half expecting to be confined to Baraka's captivity. He had the same nightmare every night. He had never spoken of the things he had seen while he was with Baraka. To witness his aunt being murdered so brutally at such a young age was traumatizing. You think? He lived in fear every day for the three years he was taken. Baraka never laid one hand on CJ. In fact, he treated them well. But like a slave master handled his favorite slave, it was still bondage all the same. The mental chains that Baraka had placed on both CJ and Mo were strong enough to keep them from disobeying. The promise of death to the rest of their loved ones kept CJ and Mo in line for years. Not once did they try and run. Not once did they fight. After witnessing Lena beaten to death, they simply complied, breaking off all allegiance to their family to survive. No one but Mo knew what they had seen. They never told anyone. Not Mia Moore, not Carter, not Monroe. It was a secret they shared. Ashamed of the fact that they had switched sides without putting up a fight, they thought their family would abandon them if they knew the truth. So, when they returned, they lived a life of pretend. CJ pretended to be happy. He pretended to be normal and unafraid, but he lived in terror every second of every day. He tried to blend back into his family, but not only had they changed, so had he. He felt disconnected from his parents, and he couldn't tell them why. He loved them, but at the same time, he felt like he didn't belong. Mo was the only person he felt comfortable around. He had been happy to be reunited with his blood, but still, he didn't seem to fit the way he used to. The silence of the house made him hold his breath in anticipation as he listened carefully, trying to determine if Miss Bernice was still awake. It felt odd being in her home, sleeping in this bed. It was all pretend. They weren't family, and CJ was conditioned to question the motives of anyone unrelated to him. He was uncomfortable here, and his weary soul unsettled. He was being traded off from person to person, and each time he welcomed in a new place, he lost a piece of his security. Losing Mo made it all seem so final. He had no family. There was no one he could rely on. Now he was out in the world alone, filled with insecurities. The solitude of his new existence made him feel small and unimportant. Somehow, he was falling through the cracks of society without anyone taking notice. He opened the bedroom door and peeked down the hallway cautiously before daring to step out. He didn't want to face Miss Bernice. There was expectation in her stare. Every time he looked in her eyes, he felt pressured to perform for her. He was like the puppy she had rescued from the pound. The growl in his stomach urged him towards the kitchen, and he opened the refrigerator being careful not to make any noise. The light illuminated the dark room and he reached inside, pulling out sandwich meat and bread. Even though Bernice had told him to make himself at home, CJ didn't want to get too comfortable. What does she want from me, he thought, 
She's not my family. She don't know me. Why'd she bring me here if she didn't want something? CJ couldn't make sense out of this situation. Strangers weren't this kind. He hurriedly tossed together the sandwich and stuffed the belongings back inside the icebox. He felt like he was stealing and would be caught at any moment. When the light clicked on, it flooded into the kitchen all at once, leaving him no time to retreat with the disappearing darkness. CJ, it's three o'clock in the morning, Miss Bernice said. Her eyes went from the sandwich on the table to the guilty look on his face. You don't have to sneak around, CJ. You can eat what you like, as much as you like. CJ was like a deer caught in headlights. Vulnerable, exposed, the grumbling in his stomach reminding him that he needed a good meal, but too prideful to admit the words aloud. She was a stranger, and more than just a sense they weren't very well acquainted. She was strange. Who welcomed a kid they didn't know into their home? The kid of a kingpin, a kid from a history of violence and lawlessness. Her willingness to bring him home made her suspect to CJ, and his instincts told him not to trust her. That funny feeling that made him feel like he had to throw up was constant around her, and it was something about the look in her eyes that told him there were hidden motives behind her stare. Have a seat, Bernice said as she walked over to him and removed the bread from his hands. She pointed to the small dinette table, motioning for CJ to sit as she pulled food from the refrigerator. CJ noticed how she removed eggs, bacon, butter, and pancake mix without even looking inside the fridge. Her eyes never left CJ. She examined him as she moved around the room from memory and with expertise. Her disarming stare caused him to lower his gaze as he fidgeted uncomfortably. How does she know where everything is, he thought. I've done some research on your family, CJ. I know you come from a very different way of life. It'll take some getting used to living here. I'm not rich, but it's safe. You'll have a warm bed, a roof over your head, and food in your stomach, Bernice said. She spoke the way mothers were supposed to speak. She moved around the kitchen the... She moved around the kitchen the way a woman should. With love. The fuck does that mean, Bob? Seriously. What does that mean? I don't know if it's more misogynistic than stupid, or if it's more stupid than misogynistic, but I think it's just a slab of this and a dab of that. A woman should move around the kitchen with love? So are you saying a woman's place is in the kitchen? Where exactly are you going with this? I don't get it. Also, how are her footsteps with love? She's moving around the kitchen, which means she's moving with her feet, which means, what? What? A woman, the way a woman should be. She moved around the kitchen the way a woman should, with love. What the fuck does that mean? Does that mean your dad never cooked for you? As a chef, I am insulted. You goober. His mother flashed through his mind. Mia Moore never cooked. She never knew where anything was, often cursing in anger when she couldn't find the eggs or the sugar. He was used to personal chefs and expensive takeout, but for some reason, the idea of someone preparing a meal especially for him made his bottom lip quiver. Children of the cartel grew up differently, wanting for nothing, but at the same time wanting for everything. Anything money could buy was fair game, but it was the things that a dollar couldn't attain that were lacking. Security compassion the image of a woman taking care of a family taking care of a husband the fuck the fuck 
As my boy Scar says, what the fuck? Ugh, y'all were, oh God, I have faith in y'all that y'all are going to leave this shit behind. The image of a woman taking care of a family, taking care of a husband. Why the fuck does a husband need to be taken care of? I'll wait. They both the same fucking age. Are they both entered into the union together? It doesn't matter if they're the same age. Why does he need to be taken care of? Why is it her job? Doing homework with her children? Shit. Y'all got Google. She. My son came to me with his math homework a couple days ago, and I looked at it, and then his mom looked at it, and he was like, y'all have no idea what you're looking at, do you? No, nigga, because it's your homework. It ain't my job to know what the fuck you studying. Nigga, what? Only thing I can tell you is the truth. You ain't gonna use not near one bit of that shit. And you got a calculator on your phone. Yeah, I'm gonna stare at this shit. Because I've seen it before, but it was a long ass time ago, and I haven't used it since. If you've ever been in a situation where you go to the grocery store, and it says 4A squared minus 4BC cubed equals how many eggs, you tell me. CJ didn't have the mother who baked cookies or the father who coaches peewee team. His family were royals and they held court in the street. His mother and father, the king and queen. No one was whipping up pancakes in the middle of the night. His parents, his aunts, his uncles, and from the stories he had heard, even his grandfather controlled the streets of Miami. The entire city was their playground. This used to be my playground. That's a good song. Every illegal dollar made, the cartel got a piece of it. There simply wasn't time for the little things. Cooking breakfast was easily delegated to personal chefs, nannies, and housekeepers. As a chef, I, I gotta sit here and think right now if a, if a, if a cartel member, if the head of a cartel, if a drug dealer hired me and offered me like tons of money to be their personal chef, would I do it? Nope. I don't want to get shot because I refuse to cook. They steaks overdone. I'm sorry. That's what I call medium well. The way these niggas want them to be. I ain't getting shot for that shit. No thanks. Nope. It wasn't until this very moment that he wondered, why do the little things feel like the big things? There are some things you'll have to do around here, Miss Bernie said, to earn your keep. But overall, you'll still appreciate your time here much more than if you were to be placed in the system. She placed a plate of food in front of him that smelled so sweet, his mouth watered instantly. He found it odd when she sat next to him. He avoided looking at her, focusing on covering the sweetness with butter and syrup. He tore into the plate, eating so fast that he forgot to chew before swallowing. Let's fill you up, Bernice said. He froze and let the fork linger midway in the air when he felt her hand on his thigh. Y'all better fix this shit in the next goddamn sentence or I swear to fucking God. I will you know what? Y'all need to go to my store, go to the link tree and and buy the sweatshirt that says fuck this book. I love that sweatshirt. Somebody asked me about it yesterday at my son's basketball game. Sorry, sorry, not sorry. It wasn't the fact that she had placed it there. Many people had pat his thigh and encouragement before. Had patted his thigh? Many people have pat his thigh. Okay. And encouragement before. A teacher or an elder, but the way she let it linger and the way she gave it a squeeze as her eyes hooded with ill intent made him feel with instant shame. 
These are the type of bad touches that he had learned about when he was younger. He pushed back from the table. Are you done? She asked. Yeah, I'm finished eating. I'm full, he lied, scuttling away, wishing he had never ventured out of the room in the first place. His nostrils flared in a mixture of embarrassment and anger. This woman was a wolf in sheep's clothing. The way his body responded to her confused him. Why y'all blaming him? What are y'all doing right now? The way his body responded to her? I'm I'm hoping I'm seeing this differently to how it's written. And if I am, then I apologize. But y'all sound like you're victim blaming or victim shaming. The way his body responded to her confused him. And he just wanted to disappear inside the temporary solace of the room because I had a lock. And locks were supposed to keep out the bad. Bernice couldn't look at herself in the mirror. It always happened this way. She would take in some child, mostly boys, but she wasn't impartial to girls, and she would tell herself that she was saving them. Her logic convinced her that without her generosity, these kids would be lost in a system where no one cared and few made it out. She always started with such good intentions, but it never failed. Even when she fought with herself internally, her urges always won out in the end. Guilt plagued her when she heard CJ turn the lock on the bedroom door. She wanted to go to him to soothe his worry and ease his suspicion, but it wouldn't stop the process she had already put in motion. I acted too fast. He wasn't ready. I have to make him more comfortable so that it feels good and he won't go telling. The last one that tried to tell. Fuck this book. It's a sweatshirt. It's available. Her thoughts drifted because she didn't want to think about that time. That time when things had gotten out of control. She had stopped for a long while after that. She had been too afraid of getting caught, but when she saw CJ walk into her office, it sparked a desperate flame inside her. Her job gave her access to fulfill her sick desires. With a clean record, she was easily hireable, but she had a long history of inappropriate behaviors with minors. Nobody gave a fuck when I was a minor. There was no rescue when I was on the receiving end. I had to take it, and then I had to like it, and then I really liked it. He'll eventually like it. Her twisted thoughts were attempts at justification for what was to come. Her eagerness had caused her to move too quickly. She knew that the most important step to all of this was the seduction. She had to woo him, the way she had done all the others. That way, he wouldn't tell. That way, he wouldn't want to tell. In due time, she thought. CJ was in the hands of the worst type of monster. She was the kind that came in the form of help, only to inflict more harm. The light rap of knuckles against the wooden door made CJ sit straight up in bed. CJ, are you awake? Her voice was soft and rang out in a sweet melody, but still CJ frowned. It was almost too sweet like candy that made your stomach hurt, and CJ recognized the force behind the words. He wondered if he might be overreacting. Had the awkwardness he had felt last night when she touched him been all in his head? Wait, what? They didn't they didn't make it like a new paragraph or anything. It didn't seem they didn't do like the dot dot dot. So I wasn't sure if this is a new paragraph. So did she mean it like that? He wondered. Perhaps being in a strange home with the unfamiliar woman had him paranoid and on guard. CJ wasn't sure, but if he had ever learned anything from his mother, he had learned this. That voice inside your head never lies. Trust your instinct. Your gut will never steer you wrong. He could hear Mia Moore in his ear 
urging him not to trust this lady. He hated this defensive feeling that had infected him. He had lived with it for years while in Baraka's possession and had just gotten used to being home with his real family when he had been plucked out of his natural environment again. The feelings of mistrust and paranoia were back full force. It was unfair. At his old school, none of the kids his age had to worry about danger or survival. CJ, however, considered those things daily. It was a downside of coming up as a legacy of the cartel. He went to the door and turned the lock, then backpedaled towards the bed as Bernice peeked her head inside. Is it safe to come in? she asked. There it was again. That smile that was forced as if someone was holding up the corners of her mouth, but forgetting to put the twinkle of sincerity in her gaze. Yeah, it's safe, he replied. CJ, I don't know what you've gone through in the past, but no one's going to hurt you here. I just want you to feel comfortable, okay? I want you to feel good, she said. The word good made him cringe. It didn't quite fit. It wasn't right. Now slip on some clothes and we'll go down to the mall to pick up some things for you. How does that sound? Maybe get some ice cream and pizza on the way back? That cool with you? He nodded because, well, what choice did he have? Besides, the clothes he had were days old and unclean. He would need some things to get by. He couldn't stay barricaded up in this room forever. He waited for her to leave, but when he realized she wasn't attempting to exit, he slowly began to peel off his clothes. He turned his back to her, moving quickly, feeling exposed, throwing on the stuff so fast that he didn't care that his shirt was inside out. Come here, she said. Let me help. He walked over to her, and she rolled his shirt up over his arms. The place where her fingers touched his skin almost burned. It wasn't that he was afraid. He was weary, and the way she obliged herself to touch where she pleased bothered him. He felt dirty. He remembered being touched like that back in Saudi Arabia. When everyone was asleep, one of Baraka's men would come into the room where CJ was kept. His hands felt like her hands, unwelcomed, inappropriate, and made him withdrawn to a shell so deep that he almost had to ask himself if it had happened at all. He was thankful for the day that Baraka walked in on his hired hand trying to force himself on CJ. The punishment had been death, and CJ and Mo had been treated with decency from that day forward. The incident was never spoken of, not by Baraka or CJ, but after that day, everything had changed about his imprisonment. He and Mo were no longer pawns in the war, but guests of Baraka, whom he had protected and had grown fond of, like the sons he had never had. CJ had never told anyone out of fear that he would be judged, out of fear that it would mean something more than a child being abused. He only thought of it when the man haunted his psyche at night, and now, with Miss Bernice's hands rubbing his shoulders. He wasn't a man, not even a young man. He was a child, and his discomfort was measurable by the tension she insisted on rubbing out. He felt her hands move lower and lower until... The feelings of her cold hands inside the band of his underwear caused him to react. He grabbed the first thing in his reach. CJ didn't realize he was swinging it until it connected with a loud thud. Everything went black as he pulled it over his head and brought it down with all his strength. He knew she was stronger than he, so he kept swinging and kept swinging. His hands were wet and everything was black. All he saw was the face of the man who had made him feel so low, and then he saw her face with that haunting smile, that devious, sinister tool of trickery that she used to try and get him to trust her. He never wanted to feel the confusing, pleasurable, miserable, filthy, 
shameful feelings ever again, and he wouldn't let her or anyone else touch him without his permission. He snapped out of his fugue, and when he saw her laying there, blood all over the bed, his stomach absorbed his heart. I'm in trouble. What did I do? Is she is she dead? His gut was screaming, run. This time he didn't second guess it. He took off running through the house and pulled open the front door, only to bump head first into three men. Ain't that just a coincidence? He was snatched off his feet so fast that he had no time to protest. Before he could put up much fight, he felt the prick of a needle as it was jammed in his neck. It only took seconds for him to realize what was happening. His lids slowly closed, but not before he saw a man stepping out of a black SUV. Estes? That was the last thought that crossed his mind before the curtain closed to black. Well, at least we know he isn't blind. Where's my great-grandson? There should be another boy inside, Estes said as he crossed the threshold into Bernice's home. This is the only kid here, and he did quite a number on the lady in the back room. Estes' henchman returned. Estes's brow furrowed in curiosity as he made his way through the home, careful not to touch anything along the way. After being contacted by Shipburger, Estes knew he had to intervene with Mo. He risked coming to the States to purposefully ensure that nothing went wrong with retrieving Mo. He had no intention of rescuing CJ. Blood was the only connection Estes recognized and CJ wasn't family. He made his way through the house and stopped when he saw the woman barely conscious on the bed. She was bloody and moaning softly as Estes entered the room. There's no one else here? Estes asked in surprise. He looked back at his men. The boy did this? Looks like it. The rest of the place is empty. What the hell? He whispered. He walked over to the woman and gripped a fistful of her hair, pulling hard enough to cause her pain, bringing her to life again. Ah! She winced through broken teeth. Please, please, I didn't touch him. Estes frowned and thought of a shirtless CJ. It wasn't hard for him to put two and two together. Then tell me, what did you do? Estes asked, suddenly repulsed. CJ was a child. There was no purpose a boy could serve a grown woman sexually. Only a person with the sickest mind could think otherwise. I, I, please, she moaned as she rolled over on her side. It was clear that CJ had inflicted much pain. He had mustered up the strength to defend himself, even though she could have overpowered him. I was just giving him a massage. He misunderstood. Where's Monroe Diamond II? Estes asked. He's in juvie. Please just leave. Take him and leave, she screamed as she writhed in pain. I think he broke my nose. I'm going to keep my eye on you. If I even get wind that you have another child in this home, or that you're touching another child in any way, I'll come back here and I will end your life. In the meantime, you will make sure Monroe has everything he needs inside. Estes paused as he stared at the woman in the eyes menacingly. Everything. Do you hear me? He asked as she nodded her head frantically. Protection, commissary, privileges, and a glowing review on his records. Is that understood? Estes pulled a gun and forced it in her mouth, breaking even more of her teeth in the process. Nod your head if you understand, Estes said. She nodded frantically as fear filled her widened eyes. Estes turned on his expensive shoes and headed out the door. As he passed his higher hand, he paused. Leave her with a bullet to remember what she agreed to. She could spare a finger or two. Estes said with the overwhelming desire to inflict pain on this woman. He walked out and approached his other goon that stood watching the front door. 
CJ was laid on the living room couch. Get the boy and let's go. Estes was disappointed that he couldn't leave with Mo, but after seeing what had taken place, he couldn't just leave CJ in the hands of the system. Call the pilot. Tell him we're on our way back to the clearport. Chapter 6 CJ came to somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean, coming out of the fog from the induced sleep that Estes' men had placed him in. How does CJ even recognize Estes? The question needs to be asked. Okay, so when he was taken by Baraka, he was five. And before that, he was in L.A. and in Vegas at the casino. When did he meet Estes? When would he remember Estes? Confusion overwhelmed him as he took in the sounds around him. I'm in the air, he thought as he sat up and looked around the small room he had been placed in. It was a luxury bedroom aboard the G5 jet Estes owned. He scrambled to the window, crawling across the bed until he was at the window shade. He pulled it up in gas when he saw the white clouds. The blood on his hands reminded him of what occurred and his breath caught in his throat. Is she dead, he thought, tears filling his eyes. He didn't know how he had gotten there. It wasn't long ago he was able to be just a kid. It seemed that things never stayed normal for long in his life. It was extreme after extreme, highs and lows with no middle ground. It was no way for a young boy to live. Now he was in this jet on his way to who knows where and he was too afraid to even walk outside the closed door to ask. He stood unsure as he wrung his fingers nervously, his eyes on the door like a hawk. He heard Estes's voice. Oh, okay, they're about to explain it. He remembered him, but not well. All he knew was that Estes was Mo's powerful old grandfather, that everyone rolled the red carpet out for him. He had heard Carter refer to him as a connect, so CJ knew he was an important man, one his father respected. This is not a good explanation. This is just... He heard about him. He ain't never seen him, but you know, he heard his voice. That he's never heard before, but you know, he knows this Estes and he sees him and he was the connect. Okay. He crept out of the room slowly and noticed Estes sitting with his legs crossed, glasses pursed on his nose as he perused a newspaper in his hands. He looked up as CJ came into his line of sight. Is she, did I? CJ couldn't quite ask the right question. No, you didn't. She's alive, Estes replied. He didn't divulge any other details, but CJ was relieved to hear he hadn't done the undoable. That much blood on his hands would have haunted him for life. He was too young to start a body count. He didn't need the guilt on his conscience. Estes surmised that CJ didn't need to know the gritty details of what had happened. But Bernice wouldn't be taking advantage of any more children. Estes had given her a one-way ticket to hell. Thought that he said that he wanted her to put money and stuff on most books. So commissary and a good record and all that kind of shit. How she do that if she dead? Maybe she's up there in heaven with them at the reserve table looking down at everybody. Like I didn't touch him though. Have a seat and buckle up. We'll be landing soon. Landing? CJ looked out the window at the shades of turquoise and blue ocean water below them. The Dominican Republic. My home is there. 
It's where you'll stay until I figure out things and get in touch with your father, Estes said. Relief flooded CJ. It didn't matter that Estes wasn't his blood. He was close enough, and the sight of someone familiar provided him a sense of security. He nodded and chose to remain silent for the duration of the flight. He could tell Estes only spoke to him out of obligation, and CJ didn't want to get on his bad side. The possibility of seeing his father, of being with family, or close to it in Estes' case, made CJ's fears dissipate. As the plane hit the tarmac with a gentle thud, CJ's heart raced in a mixture of uncertainty and contentment. He followed Estes off the plane and then immediately got into an awaiting vehicle that took them directly to Estes' Oceanside Estate. CJ had never seen anything so grand. He was born into money, so he wasn't a stranger to fine things, but the way Estes lived was nothing short of pure opulence. He looked around the via in amazement as soon as they entered. A room is prepared for you. Go upstairs and clean up. I'm expecting associates. If you're going to live here, you're going to earn your keep. You can help set things up for the evening. Get yourself together and then head out back. The rest of the men will tell you what to do, Estes said with no emotion in his voice. He was disappointed that Mo was rotting away in some Miami juvenile facility. The fact that he had only been able to save CJ filled him with guilt. He had no affection for CJ. They weren't family, and Estes owed no debts, but something about leaving CJ out in the world felt wrong. Carter and Estes had shared a tumultuous relationship over the years. Carter had been a source of pain for Taryn, and Estes had noticed it in her eyes long before Carter ever stepped foot in Miami. From the day Carter was born, Taryn had been heartbroken. No matter how well she disguised it, Estes could see her melancholy. It was because of this that Estes had never taken to Carter. Even after his beautiful daughter's death, Estes still held a grudge. Okay, so I was sitting here reading that. I was like, I have access to all the books. And in the words of Maury, y'all's own writing proves that's a fucking lie. So, uh, Carter met young Carter's mother when she was 15 and he was 17. And these are, this is a direct quote from the book, by the way. They dated throughout his senior year in high school, and it was time for him to go to college. He regretfully left her to better himself. Your mother was so upset with him that when he moved down here, she stopped contacting him. He tried to call her, but she would never return his calls. A couple years later, he met Taryn. She was beautiful, unlike any woman he had ever met, and they fell in love quickly. Um, he knew that she was the daughter of Emilio Estes. Skipping a few things, skipping a few things. He told Carter that if he wanted to be with his daughter, he would have to keep up the lifestyle that she was accustomed to. Emilio told him that his family had to come first and that if he ever disgraced his daughter in any way, it would be the death of him. So he deserted me and my mom's. He chose his family in Miami over me. Your father didn't even know about you until you were a young child. Your mother didn't even tell him that she was pregnant. When he found out, Taryn was pregnant with the twins. And if Emilio ever found out, you and your mother would have been put in direct danger. Knowing that he could trust his wife, he told her about you and your mother. Although she was upset at first, he explained that he had never cheated on her. She agreed to never tell her father. And they sent your mother money to support you from that day forth. So, he was 15, she was 17... They got pregnant when she was young. 
Like, because he left for Miami after high school and never came back. That's what they just said in the first book. So, how did, if they didn't find out about him till he was a young child, how was Taryn in tears? How was Taryn, quote, heartbroken from the day Carter was born? If they didn't even know about the nigga until he was a young child. Young and Estes didn't even know because she promised not to tell him. This is from your own book. Fam, what are we doing? It was only after Carter approved that he was incomparable in the drug business that Estes even considered getting involved with him. Carter was simply an irreplaceable asset to anyone's team. And although Estes hated him, he needed him all the same. In all his years of supplying the streets of Miami, no one, not even the late, great Carter Diamond, had been able to run through product the way Carter did. Estes owed Carter nothing, and he had half a notion to leave CJ where he found him. But Estes knew how valuable Carter's son may prove to be. He didn't know how he would use them, but CJ was the seed of a powerful man. Leaving him in the hands of the foster system was really no option at all. Also, weren't the feds coming for him at the same time they came for all the rest of these niggas? Is that why he's in the Dominican? If so, why the fuck would he come back? Why do they keep coming back? When you know you're safe, if you don't care, why? Why? Shit, no. I'll get a ticket, you can fly them out here. Fake their death twice. Estes looked out over his beachside via as the staff prepared for a grand evening. Estes had worked for decades to build this haven for his family. The massive estate sat on a bluff, overlooking the Caribbean Sea. It had been the place where he planned to retire with his family all around him, but things hadn't gone according to plan. Street wars and battles for power had diminished his dreams slowly over the years. The idea of a peaceful and full life had eroded inevitably. Death and incarceration had plagued his family, leaving only him and, oddly, a boy that wasn't even his blood as the last men standing. Estes climbed the stairs and noticed the door at the end of the hallway was slightly ajar. His chest grew tight with anxiety as he approached the room. He hadn't opened that door in years. Only the housekeeper entered that space, and even that was limited to once a week. It was his son's old room, and Estes hadn't stepped foot inside since the day his only son was murdered. He pushed open the door, hitting with his palm loudly. Get out of here now, Estes said sternly, his eyes ablaze with anger. CJ was thrown off guard and stood up defensively. Get out of here, Estes said, his eyes burning with passion as he grabbed CJ roughly and pulled him off the bed. He dragged him down the hall and opened the guest room door before storming back to his son's room. Sammy had died years ago, but the unresolved emotions Estes held came rushing at him as if a flood had been waiting behind the closed door. He closed the door for privacy and looked around the room. At the time, the Via had been Estes' vacation home. It was where he had taken his family when he wanted to get away from Miami and all the ills that dwelled there. Estes had kept Sammy's room at the Via the same. He didn't want to throw the memory of his only son away, and although he had hidden the pain well over the years, it had never gone away. Estes looked around. It felt like a shrine. He picked up a baseball that sat on the dresser and held it tightly in his grip. Estes was an old man, rich beyond measure, but poor in his soul. He had spent his years in the game, running empires, supplying the streets with cocaine, and amassing more money than he could ever spend. Yet, there he stood, yearning for the one thing money couldn't buy. Young men sought power. 
old men sought peace. And with both of his children in early graves, peace was elusive. Esther sat down on the bed and gripped the ball between the palms of his hands as he leaned over on his elbows, or resting his chin on his fists. He gritted his teeth as he fought the urge to cry. He should, he should pinch the bridge of his nose. That'll help. It helped everybody else in the goddamn family. A part of him wanted to stand in this place for a while, to soak up some of the essence that his son had left behind. Instead, he cleared his throat, containing his hurt in a compartment inside his heart that he let no one bear witness to. He placed the ball back in its place, and then stood. Guilt-ridden over the way he had reacted, he retreated from the room and sought out CJ. Estes found him in the back of the via, setting up just as he had been instructed to. Estes watched from afar as CJ carried tables and chairs, following the instructions of Estes' hired hands. Estes watched him carefully. There was no entitlement about CJ. Even though CJ came from power and money, he had humbled himself when the odds were stacked against him. He's smart. He adapts to survive, Estes observed. Estes watched CJ closely as he stood on the veranda and sipped his cognac slowly. CJ never slacked. Even in the burning heat, CJ worked diligently without complaint until the job was complete. Estes summoned CJ to his side. Tonight, you'll be seen but not heard. Some of the most powerful men in Santo Domingo will be here with their families. It's important to break bread and commune with the people I've done business with over the years. I must know their wives, their children. That way, I know the vulnerabilities of those around me. You don't speak unless spoken to. Do you understand? You will keep my guests full of good whiskey and clear the place from the table when dinner's complete, Estes said. Is that a problem? No, sir. I got it, CJ responded. Estes wasn't CJ's grandfather. It wasn't required that he embrace the boy with open arms. CJ would have to prove himself useful if he wanted to stay around. This wasn't the first time CJ played servant to a powerful man. Baraka had turned him into one before, and as CJ walked around the party pouring water into the guest's glasses, it reminded him of the time he had been taken in by his father's enemy. CJ refused to complain. Being under Estes' thumb was better than being in the system, so he kept his head down and did as Estes had instructed. No one at the party spoke to him. It was like he was invisible. His smooth, dark complexion made the pure-blooded Dominicans view him as unworthy. There was an undertone of racism in the air, as all the workers were darker-skinned, while the guests were of fairer complexions. In the eyes of Estes' guests, CJ was just another hired servant that Estes had employed. CJ sat back in the shadows, watching Estes speak as he hosted the five-star beachside dinner. His guests sat on a long 50-person table. The men were arranged close to Estes, then the wives, and the children at the very end. Everyone was dressed in their finest threads, and the string quartet that played soft music set the formal tone. Estes had spared no expense as they sat with tiki torches burning around them, illuminating the beach as the waves gently washed ashore. CJ was amazed that this was no special event. It was just a way of life for a man of Estes' stature. CJ always thought his father was the biggest gangster alive, but Estes was next level. Everything from his home, his clothes, his stature, and even the company he kept was elite. There were no street soldiers. All of Estes' men, even his pawns, dressed in suits. He had never seen a group of people who looked so carefree. He wished he could relate to the feeling, 
Ever since his father went away and his mother was caged, all CJ did was worry. He never knew how long his next situation would last. The instability of his life made him feel like a tumbleweed blowing in the wind. He never knew where he would end up. Even now, among the comforts of Estes' estate, uncertainty dwelled inside him. CJ watched as Estes and the rest of the men rose from the table. He quickly made his way over to clear the place they left behind. Four children sat at the table as their mothers carried their wine and conversation over to the shoreline. CJ worked around the kids, but as he reached in to grab a dish, one of the boys pushed over his glass. Clean that up, mutt, the boy said, causing the rest of the kids to burst into laughter. CJ gritted his teeth, but didn't react as he picked up the glass. The kid knocked over another one. That one, too. CJ felt his heart began to beat rapidly, but he kept his composure. He turned to take the dish into the via. The kid stuck out his foot and tripped CJ, causing all the good china to fly out of his hands as he came crashing to the ground. CJ jumped up and pushed the boy so hard that he fell back against the table setting. CJ's reaction was a shock, and he left no time for the kid to react. He grabbed the taunting boy by his expensive necktie and threw repeated blows to his face. The kid had a slight weight advantage over CJ, but CJ was swift on his feet. He ignored the feeling of his bones aching as he punched with all his might. Oh my goodness! Boy, stop! Estes! CJ heard the screams as the kid used his weight to push CJ off. He charged at CJ, trying to scoop him below the waist and put him on his back, but CJ kept his fists flying. His blows were vicious as adrenaline urged him to fight harder. When the kid slammed CJ on the sand, his breath left him. The impact knocked the wind straight out of him. CJ rolled over on his side and gasped for air. But before either of them could escalate things further, they were pulled apart. I'm going to kill you, the boy shouted as he spit blood from his mouth. Judging by the sight, it was obvious that CJ was a victor. A woman rushed over to him. Mijo, look at your eyes, she cried as she cupped his hand in her face. The kid moved his head out of her grasp. Let your mommy take care of that, CJ said as he breathed heavily. He started it. I was cleaning the table and he jumped bad at me, CJ stated. Don't baby him. You lost a fight? The kid's father shouted angrily. How am I supposed to make money off you if you're losing to some fucking black kid? The kid burned a hole through CJ. He was staring so hard. Go get some ice for that eye. What am I supposed to do with that? The man asked as he turned towards Estes. He's in the pit tomorrow night. He can't go on like that. You either owe me money to forfeit the bout or you put someone in to replace him. Until then, put the fucking kid on a leash. Estes shot CJ a stern look as the party cleared out. Already, you're costing me more than you're worth, Estes stated. I hope you like the fight because you'll be taking the place of that young man tomorrow evening. You'll be fighting at the pits. So, CJ's about to become like fucking, <laughs> fucking John claude Van Damme. You're not going to? You're not going to call the cops? Oh my god. That was so horrible. You didn't flinch. You have fighting spirit. You're not going to call the cops? Not if we make a deal. What kind of a deal? 916-633-1537. You're not going to call the cops? Wretched and ratchet at gmail.com. Yeah, ain't a big deal. 
Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. You can leave a review on Spotify. It's literally right above like the latest episode. Episode? It's literally above the latest episode of the show on Spotify. You can just push a button. It takes 13 seconds. Um, you can also leave a review on Podchaser and then copy and paste that in the Apple Podcasts and then copy and paste that in the Good Pods. Uh, you can donate to the show through uh, patreon.com slash single simulcast or on buymeacoffee.com slash sscast or on the Good Pods app. Um, thank you to everybody who's been um, donating to the show. Thank you to everybody who's left a review for the show. I appreciate both. Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. and outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know by now that you say.